fact, if you speak to sleep physicians, I'll tell you that snoring is the main reason that people come to see them. It's not sleep apnea, it's not tiredness, it's snoring. The snoring is something that, that has a big impact on people's life. Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm David Keir and I, I bet you know someone who snores. They, they snore loudly and you might even know someone who stops breathing when they snore. Now, we should all know what that is. It's sleep apnea and usually it's obstructive sleep apnea and that is something that we can treat. Now, it might not be something we can diagnose, but it is something we can help our patients with and perhaps we can even identify signs or risk factors and help patients understand and get their diagnosis. That's pretty profound if we can have that effect on our patients and I think it's really our responsibility to do that. In general, our education in this field in university is relatively limited so we have to do some further education and there's no one better known to provide this than Dr. Harry Ball. Dr. Harry Ball has been working in dental sleep medicine for 20 years and he has a long history of educating dentists on this important topic. Dr. Harry Ball runs the Dental Sleep Institute. He is also a partner in the 3D Sleep Lab and his own private practice specialising in treating patients with mandibular advancement splints called the Sleepwise Clinic in Melbourne. Harry's also a gentleman and he comes on the show and shares a lot of information for you guys. We talk a lot, obviously, about sleep apnea. We talk about his path into sleep apnea and what made him so fascinated and the fact that he actually wears a mandibular advancement splint himself. We talk about should we be getting studies for all our patients? Should we or how do we get into this and how do we understand it? And how can we safely provide this care for our patients? This is something I did. I did his course years ago and um, I've just done a refresher. They've completely redone the site. It's really great. So, I'm sure if you're interested in this topic and providing this care for your patients, this podcast is going to be full of information for you. Now, don't forget, listening to this podcast or sharing it on social media gives water to people in need or oral hygiene to people in need. We're partnering with B1G1 again. Um, dentalheadstart.com slash giving will give you all that information if you want to contribute as well. And don't forget, there's the Ripe Global segment at the end of this podcast. The point of that segment is to give you a bite of the information that they already share on their platform. Their platform is probably one of the biggest out there. It's comprehensive. It's made for a worldwide high level of dentistry. It's, it's incredible. You can check it out in the show notes and find any of our discount links on the link in the show notes. For now, enjoy the podcast with Dr. Harry Ball. I've always been fascinated by the intersection of aesthetics and digital dentistry. It's definitely one of the main things that got me excited about dentistry when I was a student. And to provide these aesthetic solutions, we really need to align the teeth or be able to combine alignment with restorative procedures. My journey in doing this has just begun, but I've started with Invisalign Go and now I've done the fundamentals program as well. The technology side of this has astounded me the most. You can take a scan of your patients with Itero and show them a simulation of what we might be able to do. You take photos on your phone, upload them instantly, and then you can design where you want the teeth to be in the ClinCheck program online and show your patient. The ability to communicate and the predictability is amazing. And while I'm just on the beginning of my journey, Invisalign Digital Dentistry and Aesthetics is what excites me the most. Dr. Harry Ball, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Thanks, David. Yeah, great to be here. 
It's really my pleasure to have you on. And to be honest, it is a long time coming. I, um, I've learned from you over, over the years from your posts on social media, but also from your course. And um, sleep medicine and what we see in our patients every single day is something that I think is very important and clearly you do too. You've, um, you've been exclusively working in sleep medicine or dental sleep medicine for almost 20 years. And I'm really interested in getting your story. But to start, I wanted to ask a simple question. Why dental sleep medicine? Well, I was working as a well, – it depends how much of the story you want. Give us it all. <laughs> I was working as a general dentist and, um, and I, I suppose – um, I was enjoying that, but at somewhere down the track, I became really interested in psychology and I did a personal development sort of program and just became just interested in why I did dentistry and why I was, you know, why I was currently doing it. And it took me along a, on a journey uh, in general dentistry. But, it, but at some point, I kind of decided that I, I wanted to change and, and have a break and, and sort of reassess. And I was really interested in the area of psychology. So I kind of sold my practice, which I had a general practice in Hampton, and, and then wound up doing a, a master's degree in counselling. And that included uh, stress management as well at Monash University, did a, a program there. And that was in a, an area specifically in biofeedback, which is really quite a fascinating area. It was an area which looks at the effect of stress and what we think and our beliefs on our physiology so for example you can put a sensor on a on a say the masseter muscle and get someone just to start talking about their life and if they start talking about particularly recent stressful events you can just see the electrical activity go up same with pulse rate and and you can teach people methods of of dealing with that in in various ways and so became really interested in that area worked in the field for a couple of years in in counselling, working with people with various sort of anxiety disorders, a a position came up at the dental hospital, Royal Melbourne Dental Hospital, in the TMD clinic. I'd, I'd done quite a bit of work in TMD. That really interested me. That whole field. I'd spent time with Professor Ocus in uh, in Kentucky, and I did lots of courses here, and so I had a good understanding of it. But at the time, it was it was, it was quite progressive. They were actually looking for someone who knew a bit about sort of the stress area because there was just a recognition a lot of the people who were coming into that clinic had stress and, and rather than just giving people splints and medication, they wanted a different approach. So I, I sort of did that for a couple of years. Um, this was in 1999 and at the time oral appliances for snoring sleep apnea was not very known. There was one person doing it in Melbourne, uh, Jack Gershman, and he was working in the in the pain clinic at the dental hospital or a facial pain clinic. So I kind of knew a little bit about it. No one else much did, but uh, I just remember once I had a patient come in to the clinic and he, he had severe wear and bruxism on his teeth. He was just referred in for an occlusal splint. And when I was asking him whether anyone heard him make noises clenching and grinding he he said well he, he doesn't think that his wife could hear him because he's snoring that loudly and <laughs> um, he was telling me snoring was a really big problem for him they were sleeping in separate bedrooms he'd retired he was wanting to travel around australia but his wife wouldn't go in a van with him because of his snoring so i thought look i'm going to give this a go because if i make him an appliance it might help him with his protecting his teeth as well as maybe his snoring so I made him a really kind of basic, well, at the time, 
all they were capable of doing at the dental hospital was like an upper and lower splint sort of welded together, holding the jaw slightly forward. And I was very, really fascinated to see how he went with that. And um, he came back, you know, I think two weeks later and, you know, he was just amazed. You know, he got a great result. He, I remember him telling me on the first night his wife was really worried because she thought he'd died. There was no sound coming from him. <laughs> so she was checking Not him. the usual train wreck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she was checking him. All. So, look, it really it was quite life-changing for him. Uh, in that they were planning a trip, et cetera. So, and that's something over the years I've, I've recognised. And, in fact, if you speak to sleep physicians, I'll tell you that snoring is the main reason that people come to see them. It's not sleep apnea, it's not tiredness, it's snoring. So snoring is something that, that has a big impact on people's lives, particularly if one, if one of the partners is a light sleeper. So if you get that combination of one person's a light sleeper, the other person's a snorer, it has a massive impact, you know, in terms of travelling. They might need separate rooms, and 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 separate rooms at, at home as well. So, big impact. And um, I can imagine you never forget those stories where you really genuinely change someone's life. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You you, you can't quite do that with a fisher seal, or <laughs> <laughs> we like to think so. Yeah, I know. I know. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> you do, but you've got to give yourself pats on the back often. Yes, that's yeah. right. You don't get the thanks from the patient yeah. or the patient's wife in such the same way. Yeah. So, so I, I found that fascinating, you know, and that really got my interest in the in the area. I can well imagine that would really pique your interest. You'd be focused on it. And obviously, at that time, it was relatively new. So, watching the development in the um, in the studies and the evidence coming out would have been fascinating as well. What, I, what I'm hearing a little bit, and we might, we'll take a step back in a second, but you obviously went through general dentistry for a period of time and you, you perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps got a little bit burnt out in that field, would you say? Yeah, I, I think that at some point I, I, um, I just, I, I noticed that I, or people were telling me I was stressed and, you know, <laughs> as a typical male, you know, you, don't, you just, you think it's no, normal, you know, and they would just telltale signs, you know, on like Sunday night I'd be a bit anxious about Monday and stuff like that. And I just wound up really looking to see what was going on. And I think for me, I, I'd sort of recognised that, I had just got into a bit of a routine. I hadn't, I hadn't grown a lot within dentistry, and you know, since I graduated, and so I thought I, I, you know, I, I kind of diagnosed that as being the problem, which which it really was, you know, because you're just doing the same thing over and over, and and and, and not really feeling deep down that what you're doing is at a high level. I think is something that will manifest as stress in different levels. So uh, for, for a couple of years, I, I wound up, you know, going to the Pankey Institute in the States, did two courses there, two week in living courses, did the long course in prostodyne. I did a lot of stuff and, and it really made a big difference. You know, it was, and I changed the way I practiced dentistry completely. When I came back from Pankey, I just, have you heard of the Pankey Institute at all? I have indeed. Yeah, yeah. It's a really inspiring place and, and when I came back, I just made a decision, look, I'm just going to do what I really enjoy. So no more perio, no more endo, no more ortho, no more children, <laughs> no more extractions. <laughs> I just like, I like aesthetics and restorative dentistry and just, and really focused on that. And, and so that I, 
got a lot that more really satisfaction yeah. Yeah, out of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's For anyone listening who doesn't know Panky, Panky, Coist, Spear, LVI, these are major institutions in the United States that have been going a long time, more long-form courses that are comprehensive and often prosthodontic orientated i've for a long time wanted to go and you know experience some of these courses myself but haven't had the opportunity just yet covid might limit that for a little bit longer we'll see um do you have any tips for someone who's feeling that way now obviously you went through a little bit of self-development in the cpd um, and that helped you do you have any other advice for someone who might be feeling similar yeah look i think that i mean it's important to take time to to look within to see what the issue is, you know, it's going to be different for, for different people. So I, I think that, I think for job satisfaction, we've really got to focus on just feeling that you, 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 you really can contribute in what you're doing. It's not enough just to earn good money. It's, a, you, it, you know, it's the, 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 there's no real satisfaction in that ultimately. And so I think that, that that's a part of it. I think part of it is, uh, especially with the younger audience to work with, or have a, have a mentor, I think, is, is really, really important. I think it can, it can really help a lot in learning from other people and their mistakes, etc. So I'll just take that view of just putting the finances more in the background. That will take care of itself. And, and just setting up a practice of dentistry that is, that is going to be rewarding and giving yourself enough time to, to do good work as well. Because so, you know, there's, there's pressure to have to, you know, do things quickly and, and, and it's hard to spend the time developing relationships with, with patients, uh, exp- educating them, uh, which is a really big part of it. So the, the relationships you have with people, I mean, it's a really unusual profession in that you've got, you've got sophisticated technical work that you have to do, but you also, the relationship's really important because, you know, after all, that's why people refer often, you know, is because of the, the quality of the relationship. They say you're painless, but but you know that's all very nice. I mean that's that's critical. But you know we're not there just to do that. We at the end of the day we have to do really fine technical work, and often we're the only people that that know that we've done that. So it's just that that and so it's dealing with all all those issues. You know, learn, and I, so I talk about technical dentistry, but I think the communication side of things is is really important as, as well. Taking the time to allow a patient to get to know you enough to tell someone else to come is is the best marketing you can ever have, really. It, depending on the patient, of course. Uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on what allowed you get, to get to that point of, um, you know, uh, being a little bit burnt out? Is there any, you, you mentioned perhaps finances, you were obviously running your own practice. Um, was it just that, did you put yourself under too much pressure from a time point of view, financial point of view or other? Or is there any other points that you could share that maybe someone can help them avoid perhaps? Well, uh Look, I think a lot of it is to become kind of self-aware. So I can just say for myself, I our practice sort of built up over the years. It got really busy, and I was just kind of doing working in the practice and and doing administration as well, and and so I was really busy. And it all and, and it was it wasn't my, my wife. My wife at the time, my first wife, was a, a dentist as well, and she was really involved in the Australian Hypnosis Society. So she was working with psychiatrists and et cetera. And I think that uh, she just noticed that I was stressed and she said to me, look, you should, and she had a good friend who was a psychiatrist and 
she said, you should just go and have a session with him, just have a chat, that's all. And I, I couldn't see any reason because I thought everything was perfect in my life. Uh, <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, so I went along. He just, he just asked a few questions and I just remember, this is a long time ago, you know, it would have been uh, maybe uh, 25, 25, 30 years ago, and he just, he said, he just said, hmm, you know, that doesn't sound normal, like to be that, to be stressed. Like he was just... I was just talking about how I was feeling, like I said to you, on like Sunday night being a bit, yeah. a bit anxious and stuff like that. And, and I, th- I think it made me really reflect because I just thought that was all normal. That's what you're meant to feel. That's what my colleagues all, all seemed to be the same. And, that, and I think that started that reflection about, look, wh- wh- why might that be and what am I doing? And, and so there's really it's – so it's very personal, I think, for, for everyone. I, you know, my, my view is that – we often do things for the wrong reasons. So I think, you know, my observation is dentists, whether it's choosing your partner or whatever, you, you've got some agenda or some reason. And but and, and that's not a rule, you know, and so unless we actually at some point get to know what that reason is and 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 find another way of and, and choosing it for another reason, you know, so there's nothing wrong with, say, doing dentistry for for, for reasons of, money being your own boss all that sort of thing but it's just not sufficient you know and so it's just yeah, looking yeah. to see well look this is a career I'm in and I'm going to spend the next well I've been a dentist for what over 45 years I'm going to spend this amount of time in this profession you know what's that going to be about like it's, so it's about two things it's one about one's about satisfaction for me so how am I going to get satisfaction and number two is how am I going to contribute out of that how am I going to really contribute to people's health and so just answering those two questions I think is really important I love that that's really tying your deep core values into your life and your career and not you know going off on a path that doesn't match you I think that's really good it's food for thought for all the people listening clearly that um, experience inspired you into that counseling and and stress management pathway. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that experience in what you studied and what you learned from that? Any perhaps some advice um, for people managing patients who are clearly having stress as part of the problem in their in their dental issues? Um, yeah, look, I, I suppose um, in my earlier days, you know, I, I was the boss at the, you know, and I was pretty directive with patients and I mean, had that kind of a, more of a hierarchical relationship. But I think. I just learned over the years, especially with counselling, just to, one of the most important skills is just is listening to people, and and really and really kind of without any agendas, just really listening to people, f- find out maybe what their concerns are, uh, why they're there. I'm just talking in a dental context, so um, and even in a counselling con- uh, context, it's like you, you're just listening to people, um, and, and often they're not really saying what's really there it might come out if you're willing to kind of listen and not sort of jump and interrupt which we all have a tendency to do especially us males if I was going to stereotype (laughs) (laughs) and and so if you just don't do that then then you kind of you you learn things about the people what's important to them Uh, people like that because often no one listens to anyone we're all ready to be thinking about the next thing to say and jump in so I I think that's an important part of it especially with a new patient um, I think that's that's really part of the process. It, it is for me. It's so easy to make assumptions, especially in the sleep area. You know, oh, I must be snoring. It must be this. But 
know, everyone's slightly got a different reason for coming in and, and just to stop and, and ask them and, and not assume. And, and, and I, I think that's probably, you know, one of the key things in, in the field. And then, and then if you know that, that, then you can zero in on, on, on satisfying them in terms of what they really want because otherwise you can sort of deviate from that. Yeah, you've got to know their goals to meet their goals. Yeah, yeah. After after doing the um, the Masters Counselling and Stress Management, um, you went into TMD with the Royal um, Melbourne Dental Hospital. Tell us about that experience in working with TMD and yeah, what you learned from that and perhaps, again, some, some advice for people because, again, there's such an area that is confusing often to new graduates, an area that um, we're stumped generally from the start. What did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so I think over the years, one of the things I've learned about TMD is that I, from, from a general practice perspective, I think that you want to categorise patients into two areas. Like one is someone that a patient who's got chronic pain. So by chronic, it's been there maybe for at least three months and it's there most of the day. And those patients are complex. And often those patients, you know, whatever may have caused the problem, a year ago, and a lot of these patients have had the pain for years. And, you know, when I was in Kentucky with Jeff Okerson, he got the worst of the worst from around America. These are people who have had pain for 20 years. And, you know, they've typically got, they open up a bag with 20 splints in it because there's always a dentist who thinks, no, that you can see that the, the, the splint's not perfectly balanced and he's going to make, you know, the right design splint. He's going to adjust it properly and that's going to make the difference, you know. So, but the reality is that the chronic pain patients they've often got what's called neuropathic pain it's got a life of its own and there's no quick fixes you know it needs a multidisciplinary team approach you know and if if you think that uh you you're gonna uh get them better with just one treatment like they they would have got better long ago if there was just one magic treatment they they generally need a multidisciplinary type approach which might involve physical therapies with say physiotherapists at the dental hospital we had a physiotherapist there that worked in the clinic with an expertise in TMD, it might deal with things. Oh, definitely stress. So that's a that's a big part of it. So it's often, and sometimes you know, they're not particularly stressed beforehand. But just anyone with chronic pain, you take someone who's psychologically totally normal and, and give them chronic pain, and they'll yeah. they'll come they'll become depressed and anxious, and that has to be managed then separately as well. So so you you've got to have involved people. With, with, who are experts in pain, and and that might involve you know, neurologists as well. There might be complex pain. They may, they may be abusing pain medications, which can be causing rebound pain effect, which adds to the whole problem. So I'd just be really cautious of anyone wanting to take on a patient like that. Um, you're not going to get rewarded financially for it, and it'll be frustrating. And and I'll, and there are people, maybe oral medicine specialists, who, who focus on pain. And I just recommend referring that patient, Un- unless you have a special interest in it, then that's fine. You know, if you have a special interest in it, and you've got your own physio and you've got your own psychologist, etc., then then that's fine. With the other type of person, then then you'll get someone who's just developed it. Uh, and, and obviously, we see it in the sleep area. So often, patients there have never had a TMD problem before, and they'll develop. TMD from an appliance, you know, it's usually in the first couple of weeks or so, and that, and you can get rid of that usually pretty quickly. And dentists should take on those patients. Anyone who's who hasn't had a long history of chronic pain and clicking and 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 locking, etc., but it, they've just 
They, they, they may get episodic pain. It lasts for a, a few days or a week. There, there are strategies and, and techniques you can use to help people with that. So I, I would just say that's just a fundamental thing. And, and, then, and then there's TMD, obviously, there's courses to do. And, but I, look, I do think that everyone needs to have some knowledge in the area because it's just such a, you know, a large percentage of people have these problems. And especially in the sleep area, you just have to manage TMD yeah. because you're going to cause it. Yeah, and um, I think we'll get straight into that actually. But I, I guess what you're saying is, yeah, complex cases are, are yeah, that specialists are there for a reason, and we're not doing anyone any help if we're trying the same thing that 20 other people have tried. But we also need to be able to manage those more simpler situations, as you mentioned, from a sleep to appliance. And we're going to talk a lot about that, of course. But um, you can get TMD. Um, tell us about that situation and what the common causes and common fixes are. So. There's probably two two major side effects that that um, are part of a mandibular advancement split. So, so one, we all know about occlusal changes, and we can talk about that. Um, you've asked about TMD. So, we've done figures in our own practice, and we find around maybe ten percent of people will get a, some sort of problem. It's usually just in the first month or two, and the research shows that. It, it, it's sort of counterintuitive. You know, you think if someone's got a history of TMD, you better not make an appliance because you're going to really aggravate it. And it's usually not the case at all. So if someone's got a history of TMD, it's just not a deal breaker. And research shows that you generally start with the jaw not that far forward. They, might, they may titrate really slowly. And sometimes holding the jaw forward a little bit, depending on what problem they have, actually helps with the TMD. So that's not an issue. It's more people have never had the problem before. And, and it's really, you can't predict whether it's going to happen or not. So you just got to respond. And so one, one of the things that is that if you're going to work in this area, you, you've got to make yourself available to see people at pretty short notice to get them out of the problem. Because one of the truisms in pain, the pain area is the longer the person's had the pain, it, it can be the, the, the harder it is or longer it takes to get rid of it. So if, if and, and, and often we find that you know, I, I tell patients, I really educate them, and I say, look, if, if you get any pain or problems, just call us right away. But often they think they forget that, and they think it's normal to have a bit of pain. When they're feeling good, they're not snoring, and they think, look, maybe I'm meant to go through this. And I'll come back in, say, five weeks, and I've had pain from the start, but they're happy wearing it at one level because they're feeling good. But, but it's just harder to get rid of the problem when they've had it for five weeks. So as far as the reasons go, um, you know, look, no one knows for sure. You, you, there's, no, there's no x-ray you can take to definitively know, but there's a lot of different reasons. So I think if you start with the jaw too far forward, for some, and some people can tolerate it really well. Other people, it's just going to strain you know, the, the, the masticatory system. Um, other people, you've taken your registration wrong. It's off to the side a bit. And, they're clen- and, they're, and, and I think clenching is a part of it. So they're clenching in a maybe a more musculoskeletal, unstable position. But I, but I think generally there's been some studies that show that when you put any appliance in someone's mouth, even an occlusal splint, people are going to brux more on it. And about 50% of people, it'll actually trigger and exacerbate their brux. And even though you're putting it in for bruxism, they're going to brux more for the first week or so, and then they'll come back to their usual uh, degree. So in that first period of time, people start clenching on it, and they can, and there'll be a group of people that can strain their jaw as well so there's some of the reasons that that can happen it sounds to me if you've got um your if you take your registration wrong they're off to the side basically you need to remake the appliance or are there ways around that it depends it depends how severe 
you know, ha ha the degree of that. So if it's not too bad, you can do some adjustments to and the, the, the mandible to have a bit more freedom of movement and, and they can align. But if it's a long way off, but look, it's just amazing. You know, there, there are people that are so pedantic on occlusion and registration all that. And, then, you know, the reality is this is an, another area where you see you can take the bite and it's off and people come back and 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 uh you can see the bites right off and and it's working fine yeah, yeah exactly I, I saw a study just the other day the difference and we're getting a bit deep into it. we might take a step back some people probably know very little about sleep medicine and might explain a bit about that but i did see a study saying um basically the use of a george gauge which is commonly used for um and um a protrusion bite re uh, registration um, is equal to a phonetic bite, which is something where you just ask them to, you know, move the jaw around. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was really surprised to see that study and to see that um, these two different techniques were pretty similar. Would, is that what you're experiencing or do you see different? There's a quite a few controversial areas in this field and there are people who've sworn by the phonetic bite and think that that's the, the only bite you should take and, and you're going to get better results, etc. So, I think people who are experienced in the field, you know, didn't, didn't really believe that, and I think that just validates that that it's no better than any other bite, really. And so the George Gage type bite is the is the registration that virtually all experienced clinicians, particularly academics or people who are leaders in the field, are using the George Gage. And I, I mean, it's there's nothing special about the George Gage. It's just the principle is that you want to have a way of of measuring the jaw position. Like you don't want to be too far forward or not far enough, or, or, or too, you don't you don't want to be too far back or too far forward. So this is just a way of saying, right, the patient can go ten millimeters forward. How do I set it at a certain spot, which might be say four millimeters? And you want just the min the minimum vertical opening, basically. So it's just it's just an easy way of, of, of setting that. Yeah, and dentists like predictability, so <laughs> it helps in that regard. Um, let's just actually take a huge step back. So, people are listening who don't have a lot of experience or understanding in um, in dental sleep medicine. Um, obviously, this is used to uh, treat snoring and sleep apnea. Can you go through a little bit about how a patient might present, the process you might need to go through, um, the diagnoses, and then the treatments that are available for these conditions? Right, okay. So, well... In the States now, it's becoming mandatory for dentists to screen for snoring and sleep apnea because and you speak to any sleep physician in Australia and they'll say dentists have got a great opportunity because probably 80% of people in Australia who have got sleep apnea don't know they have it. You know, say so they're kind of tired and sleepy and they snore, but often even their GP hasn't put the symptoms together. So these people are undiagnosed and it's, ha and it's having a big impact on their life and, and no one's sort of picked it up. So, so dentists have got a really big opportunity to to identify those patients. It's just a simple screening questionnaire, you know, and it doesn't have to, you know, I know dentists often get, uh, you know, they taken over by having to get just the right questionnaire. There's a lot of different questionnaires out there and get, get perfectionist about it. But all you have to do <laughs> is just ask people, you know, do you snore? Does your snoring affect other people? Uh, do you wake up unrefreshed? Um, has anyone seen you stop breathing? I mean, and, and, that, and, and sometimes people think, oh, no one's seen me stop breathing. I couldn't have sleep apnea. Well, that's not true. Most people with sleep apnea don't have what's called witnessed apnea. No one's seen them stop breathing. And I think the most important question is, have you had a sleep study? Because there's probably around 300,000 sleep studies being done in Australia every year. It's been done for years and years. 
So everyone in their practice is going to have a lot of people who've had a sleep study and they're not accessing treatment because all they've been offered is the CPAP machine. Which you said there's only two treatments for seats, two established evidence-based treatments for sleep apnea is, is oral appliances or the CPAP machine. Uh, there's other things, but they're just supplementary. They're, they're not you know, mainstay treatments. And, and, and you know, there's, there's a lot of CPAP companies pushing CPAP and sleep positions as well. And, the, and so and only about 30% of patients can use CPAP. There's been a lot of studies done on that. So there's all these people out there that have got sleep apnea, they've been diagnosed, and they're not accessing treatment, and no one's told them about oral appliances. And dentists have got a great opportunity to educate them and make an appliance for them. And that's what's called the low, low-hanging fruit, basically, because I've already had a sleep study. They're already educated. And they're ready to go once they know that you, that we've got a credible treatment that's far more comfortable than the CPAP machine. Can you just mention uh, the efficacy of um, CPAP versus mandibular advancement splints? Um, just give us a broad understanding of that. Yep. Yeah, so that's a, a big area. And so, so talking about e- efficacy, um, what you, what we really want to be talking about is effectiveness. So that's different to efficacy. So there's a notion called mean disease alleviation. So this is a formula. So they look at the treatment. So you've got CPAP treatment, which is almost 100% effective. Great treatment, but people can't use it, right? So the average, so the the people who can, who are using it, are using it for an average of three and a half hours a night. So the rest of the time, they're not using it. They may have severe sleep apnea and for two thirds of the night, they they have no assistance to their breathing. Whereas oral appliances... They, they people use it all night long. Physicians used to be sceptical about that, but now we can put sensors in the appliances and we know that compliance is really high. People just use it all night long. Now, it's not, it's, for some people, it's, it's as effective as a CPAP, as efficacious. So just to summarise, CPAP, because it's got a mechanism of increasing the pressure automatically to get rid of the apnea, it'll kind of work all the time. Oral appliances may not be fully effective for most people. It might be, let's say it's 70% effective on average, but people are using it all night long. So when you use a formula, it's actually just as effective in overcoming symptoms and tiredness. And that's what the research shows. So the research shows that if, you, if, you're, not, if you're not measuring the apnea hypopnea index, like that's a metric for measuring how many apneas per hour, but you're looking at people's symptoms of tiredness and uh, lack of energy and concentration, all those sorts of things, C- CPAP and oral appliances all, virtually always come out equivalent. So, so, th- so that's the difference, you know, in between them. And, and, um, and, and nowadays, there, there, a really big treatment, a, a really big study came out. It's called the SAVE study. The, all the sleep physicians were waiting for this study to come out because this study was looking at whether CPAP really does save people's life. Does it stop them dying early from heart disease? And basically, they were really shocked to discover that it didn't seem to make any difference. You know, So they, they were assuming that if people were put on CPAP, it, it, it would prevent them sort of dying earlier from cardiovascular disease, and it didn't seem to show it. So they were pretty... they. That they were quite shocked by that and trying to explain it in different ways. But the bottom line is there's been a real change now in that CPAP and treatment is now targeted more for, for, for quality of life, for symptoms, which is still very valid. 
and the and the and the and the physicians are more focusing on risk factors now for, for heart disease. Not saying, oh, here's the CPAP. No, if they're overweight, they're not exercising. They're really focusing on that and getting the results there, rather than thinking, you know, CPAP's gold standard. It's going to save people's lives and and that and that sort of thing. So. So oral appliances have got a lot more credibility now because the, with the recognition that they're just just as good as CPAP, you know, for quality of life. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I think that sums it up. And obviously, something that's 100% effective but never used is 0% effective. So what about the severe cases? Is combination therapy common? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it used to be said that you know, your oral appliance is not for severe cases, but now the American Academy of Sleep Medicine have come out with guidelines and really oral appliances should be offered to, for, for, for anyone, even if you're severe. And if you're severe and can't use CPAP, well, God, if you've got something that works, say, 70% effective, it can, it, most of the time it will take you out of the severe group. And if you're out of the severe range, it's, it's, it doesn't have a, a really big impact on your health and quality of life. And you're quite right. The focus now is on combination treatment. So often when people are on their back, that's when it gets really severe. And there's some really clever ways of keeping people off their back now. We might focus on nasal patency as well and stopping the jaw dropping open, which can like worsen the situation. So these combination treatments can, can really make a difference. Yeah, okay. So, there's, yeah, there's a lot to learn. It's, and it is a little bit wider than just understanding yeah, but the point um, I want to mandibular make- advancement. Yeah, that's right. And so if they're severe and they can't use CPAP, it's even more important that they that they use an oral appliance. Not, otherwise, often I've been to a, a sleep physician who's only mentioned CPAP and then the patient thinks, well, I can't use that. There's nothing for me. Well, you know, it, it's really not like that. Yeah, and that, that is quite common to find a patient who didn't know that it was an option for them, especially if they're, uh, if they're just snoring. It's very common for them to not know that that's an option. We see patients... All day, every day that have wear on their teeth and certain patterns of wear. Can you expand on I've got something in my mind and I'm not sure if I'm right or wrong. So, I want you to expand on what kind of patterns are we seeing? What kind of things do we see in the mouth that might suggest a patient has some concerns with sleep apnea? It's a pretty, this is a controver- another controversial area. So, there's dentists that are convinced that, that there's a causal relationship between the airway restriction and bruxism. Um, we've got one of the world experts here in Australia in, in Ramesh Balasubramaniam in WA, and he's published with Gillies Levine. They're, they're both you know, world experts in it, and they've published on the link between bruxism and OSA. And really, all you can say is that they, they coexist much more than they would separately. So if someone's got bruxism, there is a high chance they'll, they, they'll have sleep apnea. And if they've got sleep apnea, there's a high chance they brux. A causal relation hasn't really been established as one causing the other. So, so all you can say is that if, if you've got someone who bruxes, you, you really want to then that, that's that's a trigger for doing an assessment for sleep apnea because there's a good chance they could have sleep apnea without thinking it's a cause, etc. And then and so you would then do a screening questionnaire, but you wouldn't do a sleep study. The the sleep physicians that we work with, they're kind of annoyed because there are a lot of dentists that will send every patient who bruxes to them and and they've got strict criteria of doing a sleep study. Like the patient needs to snore loudly. So the the snoring needs to be combined with sleepiness and tiredness. And it needs to, in other words, there needs to be signs and symptoms of sleep apnea. They're not going to do a sleep study on someone, no matter how severe the bruxism and wear on their teeth if if that if there's no signs or symptoms of sleep apnea mm, that's a really really good point actually um because that was my next question essentially um if 
we're prescribing someone uh, um, just a general occlusal splint for the wear, do we need a sleep study? And obviously, we need to do the questionnaire, but not necessarily a sleep study. Yeah, and well, that's right. And well, that's right. And and but and the other thing I'll say that I've seen a couple of patients where their dentist has made them a cl- an occlusal splint, and and they've wound up going to see a sleep physician, say within a month or so. The sleep physician sent them a sleep for a sleep study. They wound up with sleep apnea, and then they get say sent to our clinic for a mandibular advancement split. And they've just got they've just paid money for a new occlusal splint, and so you know they're not that happy. And so, that, so that's another good reason to see whether, and, and, and we've, we've had that, we've had people, uh, I've had patients sent to me for occlusal spin for bruxism and no one's asked them about snoring. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to rush in and make a mandibular advancement splint if they don't need one, you know, but, but if their snoring is enough of a problem for them and then you do a sleep study and they've got sleep apnea, they're going to wind up with a mandibular advancement splint. It'll still protect their teeth as well. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely going to protect their teeth. So, it's absolutely crucial that you're doing the questionnaire and you're really understanding the situation as well. Um, when I think about the the wear on the teeth, and I'm just going to circle back to that and you know, hopefully disprove something or, or whatever, but often you see the patient who's got just really severe anterior wear and not so much posterior wear. You see erosive issues, so there's a little bit of reflux, whether it's subclinical or not, um, and the, a bit of a combination of things that tend to indicate um, potential protrusion at night time and, and reflux, does that tend to correlate a little bit more? Um, obviously not causal, but does that correlate more or is that really just something that's um, not proven? Yeah, look, I, I think that it's just theory. You know, you're kind of saying that the, they're posturing forward to increase the airway. I mean, I I would imagine, I mean, most people who, who snore, their jaw drops open and they snore and they get more air in just by, by doing that rather than grinding their teeth and having their lips together. Um, I, look, I, certainly they do coexist. So we, we see a lot of patients who they get referred to us and they've got severe wear on, on their teeth and could be anterior wear. So they are posturing forward and, and grinding away. Um, I, I think you just have to, all I can say is that if, if someone's doing that, you can't assume they've got sleep apnea. You certainly wouldn't be doing a sleep study for that reason alone. You wouldn't be making a mandibular advancement splint for that, for that reason alone. But if you, it, it, it's just a warning sign. Look, it might, maybe in the back of your mind, you think that could, if that's happening, then then you do your screening, and if the screening is positive, then you do a sleep study, and if that shows the sleep apnea, then, yeah, great. Instead of doing an occlusal screen for that patient, I mean, you might want to do some restorative work before beforehand. So, you know, that, you know, that that's how I look at it. I don't see a causal relationship at, at, at this point in time, but, but, yeah, look, definitely it's something – I did a seminar on Bruxism not long ago, and, you know, I, I know – the, the lab I work with, you know, just they, the, the number of cases that come in with severe wear on their teeth and, and, and I see those patients come in and no one's mentioned, the, the dentist hasn't mentioned the wear, it hasn't mentioned the clues or sprint at all. So I, I think it's really important for dentists to become aware just generally of, of bruxism and should be either making a an occlusal splint as protection or, or a mandibular advancement splint. But it's often neglected, I think, is my point. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. It ties into where I want to go with this. But um, obviously, what you're saying is keep an open mind, but that's there's no causal effects there. We just It's just another thing that we might see that we need to consider. So, should 
all dentists be providing mandibular advancement splints or sleep devices? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. expand on that. Okay, so look, Mike, what I think, you know, I've done lots of courses over the years and, and you know, you'll get people come along to the course, they're interested to learn more. And, you know, some people uh, never wind up doing uh, an appliance and other people it ignites a fire and a passion and, and that's what you want. So if you... It, you really, because there's a learning curve in it, you know, I think you probably need to do about 10 or 15 appliances to get into your comfort zone and work and look at sleep studies. And so, it, it, you know, if you're a busy dentist, then you, you may not want to do that. But if it's something that you really enjoy doing, and especially the younger dentist, you look at it as, a, as a, something you can do for the rest of your practicing life. And if, if it sparks your interest, then I think it's really worth developing a bit of a background knowledge and then and then have a mentor and just start seeing patients and and it's just to, to me it's the most rewarding area in dentistry and in our clinic we've got we we have four dentists who work for us part-time and most of them are um i think all of them are under 30 and those dentists apart from one that kind of don't enjoy general dentistry but they love dental sleep medicine absolutely passionate go to every course it, read about it on Saturday and Sunday and, and that sort of thing. And so if you, if you so, but you know, it may not happen right away, but if it ignites an interest, then, then I think that then you need to do it. But if, if, if you're only doing one appliance, if you think you're doing it, look, I, I'm a bit quiet and, and I, I, yeah, patients are coming in and, and they might, and they might do one appliance every two months or so. I think it's going to be an aggravation because if you're not in the routine of doing it and you haven't done the background, I mean, anyone can just put in appliances because these days the appliances are incredibly well-fitting and, and, and it's just really simple. Um, however, you've got to problem-solve and you've got to develop a bit of experience. And, but, but once you get that sort of core experience, it's just a really, really enjoyable part of practice. And Because, I mean, ba- basically what we do, we're mostly talking to people, sitting around a table chatting. The most we have to do is do a scan you know, and the appliances fit so accurately these days. We just hand it to them; and they put it in themselves. You know, it just fits exactly the same as on the models. In the past, we'd be fitting them carefully and having to go off and doing adjustments. But so, so you're mostly just talking with people, and you're getting such fantastic feedback from people. You know, it's like life changing, literally, for a lot of patients. So it's just a really great area to be in. It, so it's not for everyone, but because and you know, if you if, if you love doing restorative dentistry. Uh, then you, you may not be able to fit everything in. But if, if it does spark that interest, uh, then I think it's a really worthwhile thing to do. I love that. And we can really feel and hear your passion. Obviously, your passion led you to actually restrict your practice to um, sleep medicine. You work with um, the Sleepwise Qu- Clinic in or own, sorry, and founder of the Sleepwise Clinic in Melbourne. Um, tell us a little bit about how that works and, you know, your patient flow, um, wh- how, what you go through a little bit with your when you meet the patient, how you screen the patient and then, yeah, the flow of treating a patient for sleep apnea. Yeah, so um, when I started about 20 years ago, just locking on doors of sleep physicians, ENTs, etc. Uh, I suppose the there was research there, but it wasn't really strong research. Sleep physicians, CPAP was invented by an Australian, so Australia, all the all the physicians are all trained on CPAP. Most of them didn't even know what an oral appliance was, or if they did, they thought it was like a Mickey Mouse type treatment. And so when I went, I can imagine that was challenging. 
Yeah, it was. And, you know, like especially <laughs> you have a patient come in and they'd say, uh, you talk about an appliance and then they say, yeah, look, my, my sleep, I see a sleep physician. And when I asked him about the appliance, he said, oh, it's not a real treatment, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and they came in because someone referred them, but they still have that in the, in the back of their mind. This is what the sleep physician said. So over the years, you know, you get annoyed, but then I'd go and visit that sleep physician and I'd come armed with some studies. So, you know, I mean, there's some pretty good studies over the last 10 or 15 years showing it's virtually as good as CPAP. And, and it, was, it was an eye-opener to them. And so, so just educating the, the physicians um, over the years. And, and, and now there's a, a, things have really changed now because there's a real recognition now with a large volume of research and the, uh, and the guidelines in the American Academy that the sleep physicians should be offering oral appliances. The, the appliances are now just so different. So there's been some really, really big changes. So, so basically... We, we did a lot of marketing to the public and and got referrals and just built up over, over the years. And n- now I suppose about half our patients come from referrals and they're obviously the best patients. They just come in and just want to have an appliance. But we get a lot of patients who come in and they they haven't seen anyone, that, they haven't been diagnosed at all. And we would do a screening and we'd organise a, a sleep study, that kind of thing. With a sleep study, would you be doing the at-home sleep studies, or are you organising hospital-based sleep studies? Well, the the big cha- the the change over the years is in home home sleep studies because I mean, especially dental patients. So this, this, we're talking now about probably the biggest barrier for dentists. So if dentists want to get in the field, you can't just go and make an appliance for someone who comes in and says, "Look, I snore really badly. Please, I want." Even if they're begging you to make an appliance, you really shouldn't make an appliance for them because. Because probably if they're snoring loudly enough to disturb their partner, you'd probably think 70 or 80% of those people have got sleep apnea. And that's a medical condition. So you don't want to be just going in and whacking in an appliance for someone who snores when they could have uh, untreated sleep apnea. And, and that, that sleep apnea, if it's not measured, it may be in the severe range. You don't know if it's adequately being treated. <clears throat> Uh, so you, you've got you've got that problem. Like it, it, it's a bit like I, I use the analogy: if, if if someone's got a cough and you've got a, a really great method of overcoming that cough, <clears throat> a percentage of those people might have lung cancer, and you might yeah. get you might get rid of their cough, but you know you've got this problem. So as dentists, we we need to diagnose. We we need to know that, that what the medical status is of that patient in terms of sleep apnea. So we need to have a way of diagnosing patients, and that's been the biggest kind of barrier for dentists because through Medicare, even at the moment, it's really dentists can't send direct to a sleep physician. Like it's got to go via a GP and you can't, same with a sleep study. If you're going to go via Medicare, you, you've, you've got to go uh, via a GP. And if it's so got to send you, it's a patient got to be willing to go to a GP, uh, which is another step. The GP has got to be willing to comply with then sending him off for a sleep study. And you, you're going to lose patients along the way by doing that. So that's just been... The big, really big issue, and and then you'll get G- GPs. You send them to the GP, and they'll just tell the patient, "Just I'll just lose weight, and that's all you need to do." And you know, the reality is, half the patients we see are not overweight at all. You know, often people, there are a lot of people think that it's just related to weight. You know, and it's not. You know, I mean, weight weight doesn't help. It's certainly an aggravating factor. But there's a lot of people who've got severe sleep apnea and they're not overweight at all. We, we've developed a system now that we're helping dentists with, with a group of sleep physicians, whereby we're doing it outside the Medicare system, which is really great because you don't have to follow the guidelines. The, the only reason to use Medicare is because they, they, they'll get a rebate. 
But there's a, the, the group that we're working with now, this is a group of sleep physicians. And so if a patient, if you suspect a patient has sleep apnea, the, the, they will courier a home sleep study to the patient's home. And, they'll, and, they'll, and it's quite simple to set up. They'll do the sleep study and they'll send it back. And then the sleep physician group will email the results to the dentist. And they'll also organise a telehealth consultation because that in the past you'd have to get them to go to a sleep physician. The average sleep physician is charging like three hundred and fifty dollars. Patients, if they do go, they're often annoyed because they'll say, "You just said what you told me anyway," kind of thing. Whereas by doing it by telehealth, and that's, that's one good thing that's come out of COVID that it's now become uh, Medicare have now give rebates for telehealth all over Australia. So it used to be just in regional areas, but now you can do it in the, in the cities. So, so, so this is in, the group is called Dental Sleep Diagnostics. You can check the website, and it's just and the fee is two hundred and ninety five dollars for the patient. Now, for that, they get a sleep study and they get a telehealth consultation. It's really good. and the dentist gets a diagnosis with treatment recommendations sent to them. So, if so, for the the average dental patient. Let's say if it's mild to moderate sleep apnea, it'll be an appliance. If they're in the really severe range, so it might be, say, 5 5% of patients will be really severe, well, then the sleep physician might say, no, I think I'd better talk to this patient first about maybe trialling CPAP, you know, in the first instance. So that, that's just changed everything for dentists. It's taken away a, a lot of the barrier. The, the, the main barrier is, is, is getting sleep dental patients diagnosed in a really efficient way. And so... That that's really changed things. That's yeah. That really is a service, isn't it? And uh, in my area, I've been lucky that there's a chemist that provides these um, at home sleep studies, and we can work in a similar way with a local um, uh, sleep physician. No, but the, the problem there is if I could just jump in, right? Please, please yeah, yeah it, please. There's, there's there's only one reason that the the chemist is doing sleep studies, right? Did you know what that is? Yes, yeah, <laughs> sell CPAP. Exactly. They're only doing it to sell CPAP. So, and again, they're, they're doing it through Medicare. So, you, you've got to get a GP referral to, to, to do that. And then I've, I've worked with chemists in the past and they try and hijack the patient to CPAP. <laughs> and, and, you, and, and you see the reports, you've got to have the right sleep physician because if, if the reports on the sleep study are not from a sleep physician that understands appliances, you're going to see recommend CPAP in the first instance for even the most mildest group. Yeah. So and, and they'll have a friendly sleep physician reporting for them because they're selling CPAP. So that that's just the issues around that. <laughs> that's a really good point. Um, perhaps the way the economy unfortunately works. I want to ask you a specific case situation, right? So we've got these cases where the um, we we we're not just sending everyone off for a sleep study. We do a questionnaire. What if they're saying, "No, I sleep fine. Um, I'm well rested. There's no trouble at all, except for I snore." really really loudly and disturb my partner like is that snoring on its own enough to indicate that sleep study or because so what i'm saying is it's kind of contradictory um if that makes sense no other symptoms that's a really good question you know and i know when i first started out i'd see patients like that you know where they 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 snore loudly but they they've got no medical comorbidity at all they're not let's say they're not overweight at all uh, they're not tired or sleepy, and it's just snoring alone. And so, you, you know, you, you could treat those patients, but if you speak to most sleep physicians, they'll say they see patients all the time 
that are like that and they do a sleep study and they've got severe sleep apnea. So I, I think the take-home message for that is that snoring is a sign of obstruction. So you're not meant to snore. Like it, most people over the age of, say, 35, 40, they're going to snore if they've had a late night, alcohol, got a cold, sleeping on their back in those situations. They're going to snore a bit. But if someone's a chronic snorer, they're snoring most nights, and particularly if it's loud enough to disturb other people, that, that is a sign of airway obstruction. So that's not, oh, it's just snoring. Because uh, we used to use the term simple snoring. Well, I don't think the sleep physicians use that word anymore. So my, my, what I've noticed is that most sleep physicians now, in fact, I think maybe all of them will do a sleep study on, on anyone if they snore. Yeah. If they don't snore, that's different, you know, because it's, it's really rare to not snore and have sleep apnea. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's good. I think that really sums sums it up. But those cases, they're definitely seen and they're a little bit of a curveball, to be honest. How do you suggest people get involved? Obviously, you teach in this space and you've been a leader in this space for a long time. What, what steps should a young dentist consider as they get into this kind of field? Yeah. So, I think the like the first step is that you you've really got to get a little bit of a background in, in dental sleep medicine. You know, like... Um, you just don't, because it, it, it can seem superficially quite simple. I just take impressions and put an appliance in, but there's there's a bit to know. If you if you want to get a good result, you, you really have to know a little bit about how to titrate or how to bring the mandible forward and and when to know it's successful and when to involve the sleep physician. There's a few things to know about it. Otherwise, you're just going to get suboptimal results if you're just going to you know whack in appliances. So, it, so it's really important to say, right, I want to get into this field, uh, th- then do do a program. The program, or, or start reading a couple of books or articles. And if anyone wants to email me, I've got some really good review over, overview chapters on on dental sleep medicine. Um, it's 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 not as difficult as it seems. So often, what I find that dentists do courses, and you can get overwhelmed by all the, all this knowledge, etc. What's the right appliance? There's no one best appliance, and, and there's there's a lot of different ways of being, of treating people successfully. But I would say, look, the, the I, I, I was the chairperson of the Australasian Sleep Association Dental Sleep Medicine Council, and we, we do do a three day program every October. So really worth doing that. It was online last October. Um, I'm involved with the Dental Sleep Institute. We have an online training program. So that's based on, uh, I think you were saying you, you did the program a couple of years ago. Did, yeah. We've tried to make that really practical with uh, all the clinical steps and uh, demonstrate it on patients. Uh, and so, I, and, and, we, and we have we do mentoring as well. So there's three of us and dentists can call us anytime with an appliance. The mentoring, it's often... For the first you know, few few cases, it's things to run through, especially I think it's important to understand sleep studies so you can go over it with the patient and, and so you can establish how severe is the apnea and how much you have to adjust the appliance. And, and, and the, the education of the patient is an important part of it. So there's a bit of knowledge involved and you, and you want to have some mentoring as well and just go for it, you know, just get a patient. It's not like... It's not like a wisdom tooth where as soon as you start taking that tooth out, you, you, you've got to try and get it out. It was here. You can start, take some impressions and you can go off and speak to someone, you know, like myself. If you can plan, get a copy of the patient's sleep study if they've, already, if they've got one and discuss it. And, and, and you can just go slowly with it. And when you're about to insert an, an appliance, um, then you can find out um, 
what sort of instructions to give the patient and you can just go gradually that way and as i said once you've done a few of them it just becomes straightforward i mean the lab we use uh 3d sleep they make the nylon appliances and the 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 guys there are really knowledgeable as well with appliances and advising dentists on titration and and fitting but you know that's something we're happy to do as well so so that and so it's just as I said, getting getting that experience and 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 looking at it as something that you 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 might do for the rest of your career. Don't look to make a lot of money in the first few months or so, but it, it'll flow really easily once you've got systems in place. Mm-hmm. It's coming back to that point, you know, early on in. If you're choosing things based just on money or something else, you're not going to love it. You're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to have a passion for it. But if you are passionate about this space and helping people through a, a pretty significant medical condition, then, yeah, learn, get a mentor and, and go for it. And just, and just one other thing I'll say about that because we've really – Please. Well, I mean, one of the things we've looked at closely is, is how to implement it in your practice and, and, what, and what stops that. And it's been looked a lot in the, in, in the US as well. And and what and what they come up with is that, you, look, apart from setting up systems, you've got to take time off your practice and talk to your staff and set it up. You can't just do it at lunchtime, etc. But but have a choose someone a staff person, and in the states they call them like a sleep ambassador or a sleep yeah, a new, champion. Cha- yeah. Yeah, he will call them a sleep coordinator. So so that's the beauty of our of our online training program is that. That person can look at the videos and get trained in the area, can read a couple of studies because at the end of the day, when you're screening all your patients, and that's what I recommend, like if you're interested in getting to the area, every single patient that comes into the practice should get a a screening form. And and even if they've been in practice a long time, they're just coming in for some restoration, just say, we just want to update your medical history. Do you mind filling this out? Because dentists have got an important role to play in sleep disorders. And, And so... You'll pick up patients. Now, those patients will probably talk to that staff person beforehand or on the phone. So to the extent that you've got a really well-trained person who's good with people, then that will facilitate the whole process. That's a really important part of the process. Yeah, that's a really good point. And anything we do, systemizing it properly and effectively can really make it something that's smooth and easy to implement. It means you'll actually do it. Um, obviously, we're talking a lot with associates here or listening associates often, um, not always practice owners. So, sometimes making the changes in the practice can be a little bit challenging. Um, but I think thinking about that is always a really important thing. Um, you mentioned something. Um, so, obviously, there's different materials and there's been some developments in the technology recently. You mentioned 3D Sleep. That's a lab in Melbourne that you're part owner of. Um, tell us about nylon, um, 3D printed nylon and the um, the differences we're seeing in these new appliances. Yeah, look, I think the 3D printed nylon uh, to me represents the, probably the biggest revolution I've seen in the field with acrylic. You know, look, we've used acrylic and get great results, but we find that a, a percentage of the patients, and I reckon it could be maybe 30% of the patients will fracture an acrylic appliance over the over the first few years i had one just the other day 18 month old um appliance made elsewhere in acrylic and it was fractured and i, I was a little surprised in such a short period of time yeah no you, you're going to get fractures and, and, and whatever any company tells you they, they get fractures because what happens is it's not like a clusal splints you're putting screws in the plastic because it weakens the plastic and you've got wings and parts that are break off and people and as we talked about before a lot of people have got bruxism have got sleep apnea so you and and they drop their appliances they get little cracks and don't realize and they clench on it so you get fractures and it's just been 
it's just one of the big bugbears that, you know, every week or two we get an email, someone really upset because they they wake up woke up in the middle of the night and as they choked on a bit of plastic and or they've swallowed it, they can't find the plastic. Um, and so it's just, I mean, l- luckily no one's inhaled it. There, there, there was a case in Sydney where a, de- where a patient inhaled a bit of plastic and it's a really serious medical problem. Mm-hmm. So so acrylic, you know, like, so someone braxes, you've got to make the thing pretty thick. And, who, in, and then you, you've got, you're dealing with adults who you're putting in an upper and lower appliance and they've got to adapt to it. I mean, kids, you know, we know can adapt to all the ortho appliances, but adults yeah. are not quite as good. And you're making big, thick appliances, upper and lower. So you don't want to be doing that. So nylon, like I first, I was in the States, the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine meeting and with a colleague of mine who works with me at at Sleepwise and we we saw the nylon and I just thought it was amazing you know how thin it was Uh, they sent me one and they 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 claimed that it was unbreakable so what I did was I I made a few of them uh, nylon and acrylic and and drove over it and and I show that video in in all my seminars the 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 acrylic just just pulverizes as you can imagine and nothing happens to nylon at all and it doesn't even distort so we have not had one fracture in the in the two years we've been making them so I mean the 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 big thing is that they're thin like they on on average they're you know millimeter and a half thick and, and and they're and they're unbreakable so and they're just an ideal material I mean people say well you can't add to it but it's not expensive to reprint if you have to reprint. So the the pluses are so great on on nylon. So now I notice the labs doing um, uh, uh, doing them for occlusal splints as well. Because what dentists should be doing occlusal splints mainly for is just protecting teeth. So you've got people who haven't got any symptoms at all. They're not going to wear an occlusal splint unless it's really comfortable, and and they're educated obviously as well. But, you know, I just find with acrylic occlusal splints, you speak to people, they, they'll wear it for a, a month, six months, then they forget why they need to wear it and it's a bit bulky and they just stop wearing it, whereas just it's an, another world with nylon. So, yeah, I think that my, my, my view is, as a, a lot of people, once you start using it, like you, you, you're not, there's no going back. And I think acrylic, you know, I think it'll be fine for occlusal splints because they don't tend to break that much. But for mandibular advancement thing, I, I think it, it'll be an obsolete material pretty soon. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating, actually, and it's something I only recently learned about myself. Um, I, as I said, did that course, um, your course, uh, a couple of years ago, but actually didn't implement um, what I'd learned for a little while. Something that um, you know, anyone who's done any CPD that's particularly in a new area um, will learn about. But I am now implementing what I've learned, and um, and yeah, using the nylon. It's for, for that case. Just last week, a GP she had eighteen months fractured and she's well aware of all of the things you know everything going on and if we can give her something that is not going to fracture it'll make such a huge difference to her so let's tie things together a little bit what mistakes do you see um dentists making in the airway field right so i think that there are basic things like um impression taking or i mean i think scanning is fantastic i'd like to see everyone scan because there's just there's, it's so accurate, you know. These days, you just don't have a problem. But you know, unfortunately, you speak to any lab, and they'll say that den- even experienced dentists, they'll it's a, the impressions are not good quality, and you can only make appliances as good as the quality of the impression. So it's not just the materials; it's just making sure you've got the right tray, etc. That's just a, a really basic thing. 
and and so so that's one thing. I, mean, I think the registration is important as well. But you know that that's easily learned. The the George Gage has got a good video on how to take a, a registration, and then and then I think just just monitor the patients and be prepared to problem solve. Yeah, I think probably about or maybe 75% of patients don't have any problems at all or side effects. You know, they apart from the ones you tell them, you might get a bit of extra saliva and teeth might be tender for a day or two and that sort of thing. But majority, everything goes along the way it's supposed to go. And then you'll get a percentage of patients where they're still snoring or they've got TMD or whatever. And, and, so, and, so, you, and so just the, the willingness to get them in quickly allow them access to you and 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 be willing to problem solve i think it's an important one because usually it's some it's something simple you know and you know in, in our in our clinic you know probably over 90 percent are really happy with their appliance we, we give our patients a money-back guarantee like if they're not if they're not happy with their appliance for any reason whatsoever we refund 80 percent of the fee and we find we do our figures and we find about four or five percent of patients every year will take us up on that so majority of people and because they know they've got to give their appliance back, so people used to think, "Yeah, well, I'll keep the appliance, but you know, can I have my money?" But no. But if if it means, <laughs> means giving the the appliance back, you know, it just we, we, you know ninety ninety five percent want to keep it. So it's a successful treatment, but you may have to get in there and and do some problem solving. And and look, I think that's just the ma- the main the main thing. You know, it's 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 quite simple. It's 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 a simple treatment, but it's just. A matter of just knowing a little, a little bit of background of how to of how to intervene, and perhaps having that mentor or person you can ask with a little bit more experience to help you problem solve is is pretty important. So I, w- I want you to think about all of those dentists who have just graduated or graduating in the near future we've got um you know the class of 2020 they've had a tough year but they are getting through um and imagine you could speak to every single one of those dentists you could teach them one key thing something that they can take with them through their whole career what would be that one tip or one piece of advice that you would give all of those dentists i i think to continually continually grow and to be the best you can but at the same time to, to balance it by by being careful about perfectionism because i think often in our field it's so easy to never be quite satisfied i think in dentistry is very difficult and we we're, we're trying to do exacting work in a really difficult environment with saliva and tongues and all that sort of thing and and so in an, and i know the the way we're sort of wired up too that we can have and I have to be careful myself of that, where you, you let's say you have eight patients and they'll just love you and it's all gone well and you have one patient where you're not happy with and that's all you think about at, at night as well. So they, to be able to deal with, with those, those sort of psychological aspects as well is really important. So I just think that the dentist should be putting their energy into technical dentistry but also in things like looking at themselves the way they think. Maybe I, I think counselling is good for, for everyone just to look at what, what the areas that everyone's stressed but why are we stressed and not, not just to take a superficial view of that but just look at balancing your, 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 your life and not making your whole self-esteem based on your work. So sort of a combination of, of uh, personal development, communication skills and technical skills and balance, I suppose. 
I love that you tied that back into something, you know, more psychological, something more, you know, of our mental health and our emotional health because in the end that is such a crucial part to us actually caring for our patients and doing good dentistry and being happy at the end of the day. Um, We've learned a lot from you in this podcast and a lot from you in all that you do. Dental Sleep Institute of people are looking at the the course. Um, 3D Sleep is the lab. Uh, Sleepwise Clinic is where you provide most of your care. Dr. Harry Ball, thank you so much for spending so much time with us on the Dental Head Staff Podcast. Thanks very much, David. It can be pretty stressful managing the transition from student to professional. Luckily, BOQ Specialist recognises this and they're here to make the next steps in your career a little easier. Their career starter banking package includes an everyday bank account, an optional overdraft, a credit card with no fees for five years and an optional car loan. Payments towards the optional overdraft are not required until 1st of July the year after you graduate, which really makes a difference to your bottom line. BOQ Specialist really helped me when I graduated, so if they can help you transition from student to professional, then get in touch with them. Terms and conditions apply. See boqspecialist.com.au for more details. I find it fascinating when people go into a different path in their career in dentistry and often when they they meander in those first few years I think it's really common for people to start looking counseling it's a pretty effective way to use your skills Um, and Harry it's an interesting path that he took now we've got the Ripe Global segment. If you want to get any of this content that Ripe Global provide for us, then go to the link in the show notes. Any of our discounts or any deals or things that are going on will be most up to date on that link. Um, they usually provide a membership discount for Dental Head Start podcast listeners. So check that out, especially if you're early in your career. So enjoy the segment and we'll see you next week. Let's understand the translucency and opacity and see what, ha- what, what do you mean. So, translucency is amount of light that, that is passed through a material. So, a translucent material will allow some amount of light to pass through, but it will reflect the most, most of the, and, and reflect some part of the light. Whereas, transparent material will allow all the light to pass through. And it is the translucency, amount of translucency in the enamel that gives the different characteristics to the enamel layer. So this is how it is. You increase the enamel. So enamel layers, according to the translucency opacity, we have enamel composites which are more translucent. We have body shader composites which have a translucency and opacity which is balanced between enamel and dentine. So you have enamel composites, you have body composites, and you have dentine composites. Now, these are based on opacities. Dentine is going to be more opaque. Enamel is going to be more translucent. And in between, you have body shades. So body shades have a balanced amount of translucency and opacity. They are neither too opaque, neither too translucent. Okay, and I really love these body shades for this, um, uh, for the fact that there are a lot of uh, uh, you know defects which are which happen in inside in, in cervical one third or, or in um, uh, middle one third, for example, classes which you can where you can only use one body shade and you get beautiful aesthetics. And I'm going to share that uh, in the subsequent cases. So another aspect of enamel composite that you need to understand when you're buying this is the amount of opalescence that it gives you. It's it's because of the translucency of the material that you see that incisal one third of a tooth has a beautiful kind of effects incisal one third. This is called as uh, this is this is called as opalescence. So opalescence is an optical phenomena of a radius and because it's irradiation appearance of an object when the light is when the angle of the light is changed. For example, when a, a natural light falls on incisal one 
one third, the low wavelengths, the blue wavelengths get reflected, whereas the dark, uh, whereas the longish wavelengths or the red wavelengths or the orange wavelengths they pass through. And you see those bluish gleams of light, and those bluish gleams of light inside the one third and bluish effects that you see in the inside the one third, that is uh, that is what is called as incisal opalescence. Now depending on the different kind of mammalon designs that you have, the dentine designs that you have, you have different kinds of opalescence. So you'll see this blue gleams as in the reflected light but when you ask the patient to close and those orange wavelengths they uh, hit the incisal one-third or lower incisal one-third and they come back through the incisal one-third, in the transmitted light they are seen as orangish or amber or amber color. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists. <laughs>